is Chichester Cinephile. The podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park in Chichester, West Sussex. Find us at chichestercinema.org. Hello, it's September already and the film festival is over and we're back to the normal programming at Chichester Cinema at New Park. Well, I say the festival is over, but we're going to take one last look at some of the films we've watched with the cinema's operations manager, Richard Warburton. We shall also be talking to Rosemary Coxon, the cinema's education officer, about a special education event planned for October. More about that later. The programme for September will also be previewed by our usual team, which is Carol. Hello, everyone. Patrick. Hi, I'm Patrick. I'm the Deputy Education Officer at the cinema. And I'm Sandy, also from the education team. After this, we'll be looking back at the festival. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. The 29th Chichester International Film Festival ran over three weeks and was truly international, with new films and old British and international documentaries, live music and education talks. So much to cram in. Richard Warburton, Operations Manager, is here. It was your first on that side of the fence, not as a cinema-goer. How did you find the experience? Well, very different to uh, being a customer here. Um, I've always enjoyed the festival, but it's very interesting to see how the thing was put together. I suppose it's the build-up and the last-minute nature of everything, which was quite a surprise. I guess putting together the brochure, choosing films, having films withdrawn at the last minute, it's quite hair-raising. It's quite a surprise to see it all come together so well. It's very easy to forget how much work goes into the programming, the publicity everything because it's a mammoth undertaking it is it certainly is i mean i think with the brochure being you know five times its normal size at least proofreading just juggling all those times and then at the last minute uh, a distributor withdraws a film um <laughs> which can send everything into a bit of a spiral but yeah, you know, it's uh, i think it's incredible that with a, such a small team that it actually does turn out as well as it does. I think it was a success this time. And I think another important point was with all the difficulties of the last year or two, just to get it on and get it happening, despite, you know, it would have been quite tempting not to do it just because of the difficulties involved with COVID, etc. But, you know, we've got a show, we've still got the lights on and we're just carrying on as normal. There was a quote I heard during the festival that someone said, there are three sorts of festival... There's Cannes, there's London, and there's Roger. Now, that's Roger Gibson, who is the artistic director, and he does the programming for it, doesn't he? He does, yeah. He's, um, I think he's in Venice now uh, at the festival for there. For next year's. Literally looking at things for next year. So uh, it's a year-long pursuit for Roger, but it's quite incredible what actually happens at the last minute. I mean, we had the problem with... Um, we were going to have the... We did have the Duke as our final film, but... They tried to whisk it away for us at the last minute. And I think it was Roger's, or should we call it persistence, that uh, someone at the distribution company gave in and said, OK, you can have it, despite the fact we're not releasing it till spring next year. 
That's a great coup, actually, isn't it? It was amazing. Mm. Yeah. Why did they let you have it in the first place then, Richard, and then try and take it away? I don't know. I, I had no idea that it was such a fickle business. It happens constantly. We, do we, they not realise it's places like this are the lifeblood of... Uh, well, exactly. I find it very bewildering. There's no other, I think, sort of industry that could possibly work and exist the way that film does. It really is so strange. I mean, literally, today, I'm waiting on a film that we're showing on Monday, and it hasn't shown up. And this is not unusual. So you send the email, and there's a knock on the door, and there's a courier there with it in his hand. So uh, it keeps you on your toes. But you also had the bonus of first time looking after people as well, you know, luring them back to the cinema, luring them back to the festival, and having the patrons and partners as well. Yeah, I think I had a hardcore of patrons who've come back straight away and have been, you know, regulars at the cinema. And I think the festival brought another kind of tranche of people who always do the festival. A lot of people travel here some distance to enjoy the films. I've seen people that they turn up for the film at 10 o'clock in the morning in the studio, and I see them all through the day. They just do the whole day, maybe four or five films, so it's amazing to see. I did two films with a gap in the middle uh, one day, and I saw Roger at the first one. I saw Roger at the last one I was at, and I said, oh, you're on the same schedule as me. And he said, oh, did you see the one in the middle as well? Like, no, no, I, three is it's too much. It was, really would have been rushing from one to the other. No, yeah, Roger, he... he because he's seen all these films anyway, and yeah. he, he, but he comes again, uh, which is amazing. Uh, people ask me, you know, what was it like the first time running it? And I, I think the first week was quite pressurised. You wouldn't have thought that putting on a sort of DVD for a, a few people in the studio could raise stress levels, but <laughs> it, it, it certainly does when you've wandered out of the room and then suddenly realise you haven't put the subtitles on, so you have to go dashing back in. <laughs> so the first film was The Last Bus. The last bus was with Timothy Spall and Phyllis Logan, and it was a real crowd pleaser, especially as Timothy and Phyllis came, and so did every single producer on the program. <laughs> and they came from Liverpool and London and so many other places, and it was quite interesting to try to pack them all in so that we could give them hospitality as well as uh, seeing the film. And that added a great, great buzz to the film itself, to the evening itself. And also we had a Q&A afterwards conducted by Roger with Timothy, the director who came, uh, Gillies McKinnon. And unusually in Chichester, the, um, lots of people walk out of Q&As because they, you know, it's time to go to bed or I don't know what it is, but anyway, it's time to leave because they don't want to sit there and listen to pontificating, perhaps. But not a soul moved because Timothy Spall was in the building. And so they stayed for an hour until half past 11, which is quite late by Chichester standards. He's quite a magnetic personality, isn't he? Apart from being a great actor. Yes, he, he is. And he is very thoughtful, tremendously thoughtful man. He's not one of these uh, showbiz characters who has a different persona. He is himself, as far as I know, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, the first film I saw was one that I had never seen on the big screen. And only halfway through, I realised I'd never actually seen it all the way through before. That was Bridge on the River Kwai, and it was fantastic to see that on the big screen. It lived up to everything I'd hoped for, and here's a clip from it. I must call your attention, Colonel Saito, to Article 27 of the Geneva Convention. Belligerents may employ as workmen prisoners of war who are physically fit 
other than officers... In Major Book. Well, by all means. You read English, I take it. Do you read Japanese? I'm sorry, no, but if it's a matter of precise translation, I'm sure that can be arranged. You see, the code specifically states that the... Diverse in the ranks! You speak to me of code? What code? The coward's code! What do you know of the soldier's code? Of Bushido? Nothing! You are unworthy of command! Well, an old friend of mine visited me during the festival and we decided to see a film together and as he'd cycled all the way over from Arundel, I let him choose and he went for Gagarine, which is a French film. This was its premiere, set in the suburbs of Paris, specifically on the housing project Cité Gagarine, which was built in 1961 hence the name, Yuri Gagarin, etc. Well, they began demolishing it in 2019. It took them another year to complete it. And the story took place during the lead-up to and the actual demolition of the buildings. But it had this kind of very realist setting and basis, but it had a very interesting fantasy element to it. And it was a beautiful little film, and we both enjoyed it very much. Now, Carol's got a couple of Russian films that you saw. Yes, I decided to go for films that perhaps would never be seen in the UK. (laughs) And the first one I saw was Letters of Happiness, which was an absolute hoot. It was just wonderful. It was the biggest feel-good film I've seen for quite some time particularly coming from Russia, where you're used to more politically charged films. And this one was about three women who work in the post office, and they were telling stories around the dinner table. Well, it was an absolutely delightful film, and everyone who saw it was absolutely thrilled with it. The other one, Cardboard Pier, was far less successful. It had a great premise because it was about corruption, And you did expect great things to come from it. But I think the director kind of lost his way and decided to make it into a horror film instead. And it simply did not work. I know what you mean about choosing films that might not be seen anywhere else. Because the next one I chose was a documentary, which I suppose might, uh, I think BBC were involved somewhere along the line, might turn up on the BBC, called Misha and the Wolves. And the premise really Mm -hmm. intrigued me. It was about a Holocaust survivor who has a book written about her, and then the story starts to fall apart a bit. But that's only a fraction of what it was about. And I thought it was a really, really well-made documentary by Sam Hopkinson. And it's one of those ones that I'd love to see uh, on television, show other people and say, oh, you must watch this, because it, it, it was worth it. Well, that's a nice feeling if you want to pass it on to others. And Definitely. I hope it does come true. There was live music as well, and I think, Carol, you and I were both at an evening with Spike Wells. What an evening. And, of course, this was the very first time the Guildhall was was used for jazz, and the saxophonist, Riley Stone Lonergan, was simply astonishing. And the, the building itself is so atmospheric that it added to the whole thing. It was highly, highly enjoyable. And he had some problems, I think, with the acoustics there, but dealt with them brilliantly. I thought he was great as well. The rest of the trio was Spike Wells on drums, who was the main man there. And the bass player was Eddie Meyer. And it was a really interesting trio, I thought. Here's a clip from the actual concert.
when the trio had finished playing, there was a slight break for some lovely wine or beer, and then a film was shown, and the producer of the film was there, and he explained what the film was about. We should say that Spike Wells is a jazz drummer of great standing in the um, late 60s, early 70s, played with all the greats, then eventually ended up becoming an Anglican priest. So he had an interesting story. He was a very engaging character. And moving on to another interesting character in jazz, the next night it was Django, a French film directed by Etienne Comar. And before the film, we had a little bit of live music in the auditorium from Balkan Manouche, a gypsy jazz duo. And here's a little bit of that. Minor Swing, a Django Reinhardt classic, which they did as an encore, I'm happy to say, because I was hoping they would play that. The actual film is about Django's escape from the Nazis during the Second World War, and it's based on a novel, so how much of it is actually true, I'm not quite sure. But one of the things that did ring true was the music, the standard of the music, and much of it was by the Rosenberg Trio, who are known for their championing of Django's music. This clip is Stocello Rosenberg and Nausha Rosenberg, and I know you'll recognise the tune. There was more live music with the film Billy, directed by James Erskine. And Carol, you were there as well, weren't you? Yes, I've always been a great fan of Billy. And like many people, you think that you know the, the story of this very troubled but hugely talented woman. And you don't. And it was such an eye opener to get to realize where she had come from and her character. This was based on tapes made by a writer, Linda Kuehl, who in the early 70s spoke to a lot of people who knew and played with Billie Holiday and was going to write a book, but it never happened. And the two threads of this story are Billie Holiday's story and why the book never happened. And it was great, I thought, because it caught a lot of the famous names who played with her just at the right time, before they were too old. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And it was followed by live music from Vimala Rowe, John Etheridge and Andy Kleindert, who I was very pleased to see that she didn't try to be Billie Holiday. She played quite a few Billie Holiday songs, but she didn't try an impersonation. Here's one of the songs she did sing, though, from an album she made with John Etheridge called Out of the Sky. This is Detour Ahead. Travelling this way How strange the road to love Can be so easy Can there be a detour away Many of the films in this film festival were based on true stories, and Persian Lessons is just one of those. And it's about 
a young man who's picked up by the Nazis and taken to a concentration camp and was saved from death by pretending that he was a Persian. The commandant of the camp wanted, unbelievably, to go to Persia to become a chef, and he wanted to learn Persian. So every day, this poor man had to go to the commandant's office and make up Persian because he didn't know a word of it. It's just an excellent story of survival. Unfortunately, the camp looked like a very nice hotel, so that didn't really come off. Some of it was slightly unbelievable. Uh, but despite that, um, it was just a great story. Yeah, very watchable film, although I thought the premise kind of really bordered on being comic because this guy literally had to make up words on the spot. And the tricky thing for him was that he had to remember them all and there ended up being thousands of them. So if he got one wrong, the commandant would know he was impersonating an Iranian. So there were actually quite a lot of comic opportunities, which obviously feels a little bit odd in a film with that setting. And so it didn't really go for the comedy, but it did try and go for tension, of which there should have been sort of oodles. But I think it sort of missed that as well somehow. Although it was engrossing, I never really felt on the edge of my seat that is he going to get a word wrong? Is this going to happen? What are going to be the, the, the upshot of this? I think you're right about the tension. And I think it was just the premise of the whole idea, which should have come together much more forcibly. There was voting at the end of every film and the audience winner for the documentary was Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival directed by Questlove which somehow got lost in the shadow of Woodstock and has never been shown till now. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And, I mean, I consider myself a serious fan of soul music, but I had never heard of this, never heard of its existence at all. And it was an absolute revelation. I mean, it was just one great act after another. You know, it's Nina Simone, Sly Stone, Staple Singers, Mahalia Jackson, Stevie Wonder. It was just amazing, along with a lot of very interesting sort of cultural context and interviews and stuff like that. Here's a clip from it where one of the audience members at the time is remembering what it was like. Around the park, people were selling food. Mom was cooking. She had her grill, chicken, mac and cheese, maybe some greens, lemonade, Kool-Aid, selling beer, selling headbands, sweatbands, and balloons. I remember that distinctly. It smelled like Afro-Sheen and chicken. Growing up in Harlem, if you went to places like that, you went to the movies. Mom fried some chicken, she put it in a foil, and you took it with you. We brought everything to the park. You know, the blankets, the Vaseline for the knees. It was the ultimate black barbecue. And then you start to hear music. And someone speaking. And you knew it was something bigger. I loved it, absolutely loved it too, and it was a revelation to me as well. Um, what I found greatly interesting was the crowd. 
And the crowd were, were so attentive. They really wanted to be there. There was an expression of absolute joy that there were just masses of black people in Harlem at a concert and that had never, ever happened before. The civil rights movement had reached a certain point and there was definitely a feeling that there was a, a change was going to come, to quote the song. Yeah. Now the other big audience winner was, surprisingly, the surprise film. The Kalini case was the audience winner film uh, during the festival. It's a German film based on a true story, and it was absolutely riveting, excellently well told, and I wouldn't have missed it for anything. And I don't know if it's coming back, Richard. We certainly will if we can. It's yeah. not in the next season, but we're, we will bring it back for yeah. sure. Well, I, I do urge people to see it because it's really quite something. Oh, we'll look out for that. Yeah, I've already been urged by several people to see it, so I was, it'd be great if they do bring it back. I'll be there. De Gollum was a 1920 film directed by, written by and starring Paul Wagner and it was a very interesting early horror film because it uh, anticipated a lot of the ones that came later on, didn't it Richard, in terms of like Frankenstein. I was going to say yes of course of the Frankenstein images all over it. Um, Mm. Yeah, it was an interesting film. I don't think it's nowhere near a Nosferatu or or, uh, films of that ilk. However, once you add in John Sweeney's piano and the Guildhall, it's an incredible experience, which I wouldn't have missed for the world. In fact, it was before I joined the cinema, it was always practically my favourite night of the, the year. It sounds a bit sad, but um, I've just loved coming to see Faust and films films like that, um, previously shown in St John's Chapel. But I think the Guildhall worked very well, despite its, uh, it, its capacity is a little bit reduced. But um, we might be going there again next year, I don't know. And if you haven't been, you really must consider it for next year. I know it sounds a little off-putting, it'll be a German silent film. It doesn't really matter that it's German because the intertitles are in English. But it's just such an experience, I can't recommend it enough. And as we've heard, the final film, The Closer, was... The Duke, indeed, which starred Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren. And yet again, another based-on-true-story film. Absolutely delightful beautifully played you would not have recognized Helen Mirren if you hadn't been told that she was in it because she does play a 1960s housewife rather well and it was one of those joyful films that you would really be very very happy to come across Uh, if you want to see a feel-good film then see this film has Jim Broadbent ever been in a film that wasn't brilliant no absolutely not (laughs) no There were some education events, too, linked to the retrospectives at the festival. The first was Tavernier Laissez-Passer, about French director Bertrand Tavernier. We've talked a lot about Tavernier in recent podcasts. Well, Patrick and I are not really able to talk further about this as we gave the talk. Suffice to say that one of the films in the retrospective, Round Midnight, won the retrospective award from the audience, and quite right, too. It was great to see Ian Christie back at the festival. I I believe he was last here three years ago when he did a brilliant talk on Bergman. But this time he was talking about Fellini and his dreams and he brought with him this extraordinary book which has been published with drawings by Fellini and 
accounts of his dreams and then how they related to his films. And it was an absolutely fascinating and entertaining talk by Ian. I also saw <laughs> Philinopolis, which was a very interesting documentary about Fellini, where someone was watching him and filming him all the way through his filming of three of his later films. For Bogard and the Europeans, we were joined at the cinema by Brock Vanden Bogard, who is the nephew of Dirk Bogard, and John Coldstream, who is his biographer. And that was sold out, wasn't it? We were absolutely rammed in for that. It was, and it was a great talk, really nice double act, I thought, from John and Brock. Very interesting mixture of analysis of this very kind of strange period in Bogard's career, if you think of what had come before, but fascinating, um, together with uh, some kind of anecdotes from Brock and John's personal knowledge. Yeah, a lot of insight into his mm. character. After the talk, I asked Brock whether it was fair to say that earlier in his career, Dirk Bogard was told which films he had to make, but for his later European films, he was freer to make his own choices. I think so. I think once he was out of contract with rank, he, he was always able to make his own choices. But I think that the difference was that the type of scripts he was receiving in Europe were of a, of a much higher level than the scripts he was being offered in the UK, which were going to a new wave of you know, cinema actor. And, he, and he, he was perceived to be sort of outside that. And, uh, but the Europeans you know, could see the value in him. And, uh, Dirk had a, had a knack of always being one step ahead of the game. You know, and he, he followed the cinema that really were his hard leg. But consequently, you have a collection of extraordinary pieces of work which are testament to that. Certainly the later period uh, are very different from the early films, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're hard to comment on them really. I mean, they're, they're a much more complex sort of uh, narrative, um, a much more European type of film. Only in Europe do they make films like that and that's you know, where Dirk wanted to be. Yeah, very much a European, as it was uh, mentioned in there. Yeah, well, he always said that in in another life he always thought he was a Frenchman. You know. There'll be more on Dirk Bogart later on. The final education event was the traumatic screen, the films of Christopher Nolan, and the first half of that was given by Dr Stuart Joy of Solent University, and the second half was given by Patrick of this parish. It was very interesting. And Nolan's such a complex director, isn't he, in many ways. But the talk largely concentrated on the themes that run through all his films, even though they're quite a diverse selection of films. Well, Stuart was really focusing on the two early films he made, and he spent a lot of time because they're obviously less familiar. Um, these are two short films, Doodlebug and Tarantella, which he made in his youth. It was fascinating, and I caught up with Insomnia from 2000-ish? 2002. Which I had missed at the time, and that's a good thriller. Yeah, very interesting adaptation of the Norwegian one, and I'd seen that earlier, and I remember yeah. going to see that when it came out. Still to come are more details about education events at the cinema and a listener's unforgettable film, while next we'll be selecting some highlights from the September programme at Chichester Cinema at New Park. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? 
Let's move on to the programme for September, starting with something that Carol has noticed. Nicholas Cage is in a film called Pig, and he plays Robin Field, a former Portland-based chef turned hermit, living off-grid in Oregon's forests. And he lives entirely alone, save for the company of his prized truffle-hunting pig, and regular visits from Amir, a slick supplier of luxury ingredients to high-end restaurants. One night, unidentified assailants steal Robin's pig, and he's forced to turn to Amir, who dutifully drives him to Portland, the city he left a long time ago, in order to track down the hog-napping culprit. It's Nicolas Cage's most contemplative performance in years, a reminder of a time when David Lynch hailed Cage as the jazz musician of American acting. Come and judge for yourself. And here's a clip. So do you know about the pig? Why, why do you want a pig? It's my pig. Oh, okay. That, that, that's great. That's a, that's, a, that's a great business. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expanding industry. It's... it's... Someone stole it. <laughs> I really, um, I respect you, chef. I always have. But I'm running a business here, and people have expectations. Uh, critics, uh, investors, so forth. And uh, uh, truffles are, are, are a key part of the whole uh, concept of the winter menu, and, and they need to be the top of the line. So you understand. I, I, have, I have the utmost respect for you. Utmost. Well, you wait for ages for a film about looking for truffles and two come along. The Truffle Hunters couldn't be more different, though, as it's a thoughtful documentary about the elderly men and their dogs in Piedmont, Italy, who search out the rare and very expensive white alba truffle deep in the forests. Directed by Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw, it was premiered at the Sundance Festival 2020. It's had rave reviews and seems to be a thoroughly riveting portrait of these single-minded men and the treasure they seek. Patrick, what's next? Well, Respect is a biopic from first-time director Liesl Tommy about Aretha Franklin, arguably the greatest singer of the modern era of popular music. Well, she is, in my opinion, anyway. Jennifer Hudson, who won an Academy Award on her acting debut for her performance in Dreamgirls, plays Aretha. Here, working on her version of the title song, a cover version, of course, of Otis Redding's original, with her younger sister, Carolyn, played by Hayley Kilgore. Just a little bit. Go a third below, Carolyn. Just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit. What the hell? It's almost 3 a.m. We're writing a hit song. It's Otis Redding's song. Just a little bit. <laughs> I'm sure that if anyone has the singing chops to impersonate Aretha Franklin, it's Jennifer Hudson. But my interest in the film is more concerned with the way it depicts the music business in the 60s and early 70s. Apparently only covers Aretha's career up to her gospel album from 1972, Amazing Grace. And Mary J. Blige also features as Dinah Washington. 
Carol. Wildland is from Denmark, and it's one of these Scandi noir films which are eagerly awaited. And it's made by the filmmaker Jeanette Nordahl, who served her time as a second unit director of TV's Borgen. Now, you probably know where you're going from here. She gives us an insidiously horrible and thrilling Scandi noir of her own. The original Danish title is Ke and Blå, which is Flesh and Blood. So Wildland is a bit tame in comparison. After a car accident robs Ida of her mother, she is sent to live with her estranged aunt Bodil, who is the well-known Sisa Babette Knudsen and her cousins. It's a robustly affectionate household on the surface that helps heal the scars of grief. Ida soon finds herself adopted as a kind of mascot for her older male cousins. But... With entrance into the inner circle of the family come certain expectations that Ida will abide by the family codes and that she will step up to duties in the family business, extortion, debt collection and violent intimidation. A real Scandinoir. The Nest is a new film starring Jude Law and Carrie Coon. It was written and directed by Canadian Sean Durkin, who was responsible for the excellent Martha Marcy May Marlene in 2011. It was his first full-length feature film. In The Nest, Jude Law is an expat commodity trader who brings his family to the UK, rather unwillingly and without consulting them, from the States. It's set in the 1980s, the time of Reagan and Thatcher, and what ensues is a kind of psychological thriller, though it's the type of film that in some ways defies easy description. Here's a clip. I saw some deposits you made. It's nowhere near what you're spending. It's taking time. It takes time. It's coming. Here's the next payment. It's the one. All right, well, if you have all this money coming in 10 days, then you can buy me dinner and we can order whatever we want. Of course. Of course. Are you ready to order, sir? Yeah, I think so. We'll start with a dozen oysters and the shrimp cocktail. My princess will have the Chateaubriand, and I'll do the whole roasted sea bass. Let's start with a bottle of white, and then we'll have red with our dinner, whatever you think goes best with our food. Don't look at him. I've told you what we wanted. Thank you. You're embarrassing. And you're exhausting. Patrick, you're next. Yeah, well, as a further celebration of the 100th anniversary of the birth of Dirk Bogard, we have a very welcome opportunity to revisit what is perhaps his greatest film. Some people might argue with me on that, but I think it is. Joseph Losey's The Servant, scripted by Harold Pinter, co-starring James Fox, Sarah Miles and Wendy Craig. Here, Bogard, in the title role, begs his former employer, James Fox, to take him back. I deceived you. I played your force, I admit that. She was to blame. It was her fault. She'd done us both. If you can find it in your heart, sir. Give me another chance. I can't recommend this too highly. One of the very best British films of all time, a pitch black comedy drama, 
what you might call the apotheosis of the cinema of Louche. <laughs> What's your next choice, Carol? My next choice is a German film called I'm Your Man, and it's about a research scientist at the Pergamon Museum in Berlin whose name is Alma, and she approaches all aspects of life with a measured blend of curiosity, pragmatism, and cynicism. It's this, together with her single status, which marks her out as an ideal candidate for a unique experiment, road-testing a humanoid robot which has been precision-tooled to replicate her requirements for the perfect man. Tom, played by Dan Stevens, who is superb, is a constantly evolving algorithm housed in a fully functioning male body with the crisply groomed polish of a catalogue model and the romantic imagination of a hallmark greeting card. The setup promises a high-concept romantic comedy, but in execution, Maria Schreider's immensely enjoyable picture delves rather deeper, touching on philosophy, social-sexual ethics, and humanity's uneasily symbiotic relationship with technology. Sounds like a great film. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. And now, a British film, After Love... The ever-dependable Joanna Scanlon plays Mary Hussein, whose husband works on the ferries out of Dover. She is suddenly widowed and then finds that her late husband had another life, the other side of the channel. The film is directed by Alim Khan, his first full-length film, and he is of mixed Pakistani-English heritage, and he was brought up in Kent. Joanna Scanlon's character has converted to Islam so she could marry her husband, and her restrained performance is being highly lauded. This is, by all accounts, a very accomplished debut from the director, too. In this clip, Mary is talking to her French counterpart, played by Nathalie Richard, who doesn't know who she is. Mary is adjusting her hijab. Did you convert when you married? Yes. How do you feel about wearing it? How do I feel? Mm-hmm. I don't. I've worn it longer than I haven't. It must have been hard to take all that on. Back then I did something for my husband that no one else could. A classic now with Patrick. Yeah, well, along with The Servant, another great opportunity to revisit a memorable performance is afforded to us with two screenings of Irving Rapper's Now Voyager, featuring Betty Davis as Charlotte Vale, the repressed, neurotic, unmarried daughter of her psychologically abusive mother, also played magnificently by Gladys Cooper. Here is Davis spikily fending off the concern of sympathetic psychiatrist Dr Jackwith, played by Claude Rains. You don't happen to have a cigarette hidden away someplace. I seem to have left my tobacco and my coat downstairs. Do you think I hide cigarettes in my room, Doctor? No. Where do I hide them, Doctor? On the shelves behind the books? Cigarettes and medicated sherry and books my mother won't allow me to read? Whole secret life hidden up here behind a locked door? Please. It was only the box that reminded me. How very perceiving you are, Doctor. How very right you are. This wonderful Hollywood melodrama, along with its source novel by Olive Higgins Prouty, has acquired a new lease of life as a feminist classic, and its climactic sequence is a high point of 40s cinema. 
Along with Reigns, the other man who saves the sanity of Davis is aspiring architect Jerry Durrance, play, played by Paul Henreid. And four years later, rapper reunited these three stars in Deception, this time in a love triangle, with Davis as a classical pianist, Reigns as a Spengali-like composer, and Henreid as a cellist. At a party to celebrate her marriage to Henreid, Davis plays a very famous piano sonata. I've been asked to play. Something tender it should be, and pathetic. A little absurd. Chopin, perhaps. Carol has asked me to play the Appassionata. I, I haven't tried it for a long time, so you'll, you'll have to bear with me. Has everyone a comfortable place to sit? Good. The Appassionata Sonata was, of course, composed by Ludwig van Beethoven, and that clip, along with many others from films as diverse as Fantasia, A Clockwork Orange, and Immortal Beloved, will feature in an illustrated talk I'm giving at 10.30am in the auditorium on Saturday, October the 2nd, entitled Beethoviana Cinema, to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the birth of the great composer. And tickets are available now. Thanks, team. The other thing we should mention is that Carol organised a kind of cine circle during the festival, but at Wagtail Cafe, quite a few people came and we had a good time chatting about films. And Wagtail is going to be the new venue for cine circles, which restart on Thursday, September the 30th. Cafe owner Laurel is delighted to welcome us to the cafe, which is next door to Carluccio's in Church Square. For a glass of wine, beer, cider, mead or a hot drink, it will be between 6 and 7 p.m. on the 30th. And you can sign up to attend by contacting Richard Warburton, the operations manager, at richard at Then Carol will send a list of the films to discuss, although we can always discuss other films, of course. After this, we have a listener talking about a film that is unforgettable and means the most to them. Put the candle back. Now we have one of our listeners and their unforgettable film, the one that means the most to them. This time we're joined by Christine Godsmark. Which film have you chosen, Christine? I've chosen Glengarry Glen Ross, which was based on a play by David Mamet, a Pulitzer Prize-winning play, and he actually wrote the screenplay, and it was released in 1992, when we were both living in America, so we would have actually seen it in the States. And we've always been interested in the theatre, so I think I was probably aware of David Mamet as a playwright. And it made a, an impression on both of us, but um, made a big impression on me, partly because of the quality of the acting. There are only really eight main characters, and it's almost like a filmed play. James Foley is the director, and he didn't sort of do anything magnificent afterwards. In fact, he got an award for being the worst director, I think. So it's quite claustrophobic. It takes place in a real estate office and basically just there, these real estate agents are selling pockets of land. It's like a pressure cooker. It's a play about power, I think, and the shift of power. And it does shift during the play. And I think it's quite an interesting sort of psychological play or film. And as I said, it's brilliantly acted by each of the eight characters. It starts with 
Alec Baldwin, who spends seven minutes really destroying with disrespect the position of these four salesmen. What's the problem, pal? You, Moss. You're such a hero. You're so rich. How come you're coming down here wasting time with such a bunch of bumps? You see this watch? You see this watch? Yeah. That watch costs more than your car. I made $970,000 last year. How much you make? You see, pal, that's who I am and you're nothing. The prize is a Cadillac and the second prize is a set of steak knives. So they're already like that, but he says that they will lose their jobs in a week and only two of them will retain their jobs out of the four. So it could become dog-eat-dog, but it doesn't initially become like that. It becomes the four of them against him and the four of them against their boss. The main character, Al Pacino, is the best salesman, but even his position shifts a bit during the play. I won't give away the ending, because that's the interesting thing about the, the film. Jag off John, opens his mouth, blows my Cadillac. Uh, I swear it's not a world of men. It is not a world of men machine. World of clock watches. Bureaucrats. Office holders, what it is. It's not for the faint-hearted, because there's a lot of profanity in it. <laughs> Christine Godsmark was talking about Glengarry Glen Ross, directed by James Foley in 1992. They call me Mr. Tibbs. And now we're joined by Rosemary Coxon, the Education Officer at Chichester Cinema at New Park. We've got lots lined up for the autumn, but we're going to talk about one in particular, The Power of Film. You chose the title for that, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. It's quite a story behind this. If I could just elaborate. Two years ago, I created an event at the cinema called Rivonia about the trial of Mandela and the others. It was very successful and obviously had a law input and was attended by A-level law students and others connected with the trial. This year, I wanted to do something similar, but with an English slant using British films and set in this country. So I decided to look at films which influence public opinion and the law. I got very excited about this, but sadly my first attempt foundered because it was pointed out to me that it was very difficult with many of the films I chose to prove that they in fact did influence public opinion and the law. So I had to completely rethink it, undeterred, and I decided that only two of the films that I'd chosen from about 15 originally met that criteria, and they were Victim and Cathy Come Home. So why Victim? Victim influenced public opinion at the time that it was shown because there were various attempts to decriminalise homosexuality between consenting adults. And the film itself deals with Mel Farr, played by Bogard, who is a flourishing barrister, but also a closet homosexual. And if this was revealed, then his whole career would go up in smoke he was one of many men who were targeted by criminals and blackmailed because of their sexual history. Let's have a clip. 
Yes, that would be good. You haven't changed. In spite of our marriage and your inmost feelings, you're still the same. That's why you stopped seeing him. You felt for him what you felt for Stainer. That's not true. You were attracted to that boy as a man would be to a girl. Laura, Laura, don't go on. For God's sake, stop. Stop now. I can't stop. I love you too much to stop. I thought you loved me. If you do, what did you feel for him? I have a right to know. All right, you want to know. I shall tell you. You won't be content until you know, will you? Till you ripped it out of me. I stopped seeing him because I wanted him. Do you understand? Because I wanted him! That was Dirk Bogard, as Rosemary just said, as Melville Farr, the barrister, confronted by his wife, Laura, played by Sylvia Sims. She is aware that he has had homosexual relationships at university, but had felt that was all past. And as the events of the film show, she's confronted with this situation again. The relationship between the Bogard character Melville Farr and his wife is very interesting, isn't it, really? Because it's never really explained. As you said, he's homosexual, but I suppose in theory he was bisexual if he had a relationship with his wife. Yes. But that's almost as fascinating as the, the rest of the film. Yes, yes. It is, it is very interesting, and I think Sylvia Sim plays the part really well. She was actually six months pregnant at the time, <laughs> but uh, she's a beautiful lady and, as I say, was very convincing in the part. I think there are some really, really strong scenes in this film, uh, particularly when she realises that her husband has not become the person that she thought she'd married and, in fact, is still tempted with the homosexual tendencies. But the film as a whole, I think, is completely riveting. There had been moves, hadn't there, before yeah. Victim to yeah. decriminalise homosexuality, yes. hasn't there? Yes. The report in the 1950s. Yes. yes, coming back to the event itself, which is on the 9th of October in the cinema and free to everyone who would like to attend. It's going to start at 10am and with several breaks it's going to finish about half past two in the afternoon. The people who will attend are very similar to those in the Rivonia event in that we've got law students coming from Chichester University and Bishop Luffer School. We've also got two representatives of legal firms in Chichester, Pallant Barristers and George Ide, but as well as the Der Bogard film. I must talk about another film which again influence public opinion and the law and that is Cathy Come Home. Directed by Ken Loach. It, it is, it yeah. is, that's right and it was shown as a television play on BBC television and watched by 10 million people, a landmark really uh, for BBC films. What was the law change that Cathy Come Home influenced then? Rosemary? Well, to, to explain that, I need to say a little bit about the story. The story that's told in the film is the story of Reg and Cathy, a couple with three young children, who for various reasons start off with a lovely apartment, but whose lives spiral into poverty and very, very destitute by the end of the film for various reasons, none of which are their fault. Oh, there was one place we did go to, and I thought we were going to have a chance. They said six pounds, and the next thing we heard, someone had offered a mate. So that put the cap on that. And other letters we got, ten pounds a week. Because Reg couldn't afford it, not on his wages, it meant that all the week we'd be living on next to nothing. In Birmingham, 39,000 families on the waiting list. Leeds, 13,500. Liverpool, 19,000. 
Manchester, nearly 15,000. It wasn't long before I realised something. We'd been lucky to get the old place. There didn't seem to be anything for us anymore. In Liverpool, one household in nine is on the waiting list. In Manchester, it's one in 14. In Birmingham, there are 4,000 overcrowded houses, 12 people to a house. Is that yours? Well, yes, it's just us and my husband. Sorry, No children except. I had a couple of elephants. They might have said, fair enough, you can leave them outside in the yard. But children, they'd say, sorry, we can't have nothing like that. It was as if they thought it was a crime to have children. What I am hoping to do is to show how Cathy Come Home, the film, influenced the way that homeless people were thought of. For instance, the laws were changed about husbands uh, not being allowed to live with their wife in homeless accommodation. In the film, Reg, who's Cathy's husband, cannot live in the hostel where she and her three children are put. The actors in this film are outstanding, I think, particularly Carol White, who was a favourite of Ken Loach, and some harrowing scenes in this film, and a real influencer, so that what happened with the law is that the law was changed and husbands were allowed to be with their wives in homeless accommodation, and also that children could not be arbitrarily taken away from their parents, as they were in this film. It is an absolutely shocking film, isn't it? Yes. It's extraordinary. I mean, yes. it's like Dickensian, isn't it? Yes. You think the, the, the conditions under which people the lived and the way they were treated, and you think this was 1966, you know, it's yes. not that long ago. Yes, yes. The most shocking scenes to me are there's a scene where the couple end up having to live in a caravan permanently because they're not allowed homes for themselves and their three children. And the people who live around the caravan site are absolutely furious that these caravan dwellers are here permanently. And they're almost given permission by the man from the council to resort to violence to evict them. So the format of the event is yes. um, clips from the films, some discussion, and a panel discussion with these other people as well. Yes, if I could just briefly explain who will be on the panel. Uh, we have the two legal gentlemen from Legal Practices in Chichester. We have the CEO of Stone Pillow, the yeah. homeless organisation in Chichester, uh, Hilary Bartle, and her deputy. And we have Amy Elkington, who's the head of law at the University of Chichester, who's going to bring her students along. And we also have Ian Thomas, who is the head of law at Bishop Luffer. And I'm hoping more schools will take part as well. And it's going to be very interactive. It's not just going to be talking from the front. The panel will engage with the audience. There'll be questions asked. There'll be students, hopefully, asking questions and contributing answers, I hope. And it's going to be more of an interactive event than just a static talk. And can you remind us of the date? Yes, the date is Saturday the 9th of October, 10 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. with breaks, obviously, free to everyone who attends, but you do need to get a ticket because you need to know where to sit. Great, that sounds like a fascinating event. I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'm going to be there. I know I'm going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Rosemary. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're going to need a bigger boat. 
That's all we have for this month. We'll be back with the programme for October, so don't forget to let us know if you'd like to tell us about your unforgettable film, the film that means the most to you. Contact us via walter at chichetercinema.org and please mark it podcast. Thanks for joining us, and until next month, it's goodbye from Carol. Goodbye, everyone. From Patrick. Goodbye, everyone. And from me, Sandy. Goodbye. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Find us at chichestercinema.org.